Diakonasa Cops Calling is sponsored by Luciano's Woodworking. Luciano's Woodworking is owned and operated by Carlos Luciano Jr., and he works with each of his customers to create hand-carved wooden plaques, signs, wall hangings, and more. Currently, he is working on a wall hanging for Diakonasa Cops Calling, and I am super excited to see it once it's completed. He's worked with me to meet the style, the colors, the print, and the frame I want for this project. You can see his talented work. Just check out Luciano's Woodworking on Facebook and Instagram. Whether you want a welcome sign for your home, a plaque to display challenge coins, a hand-carved piece of your favorite sports team, a personalized stovetop cover, retirement plaques for those in the military or in law enforcement, wall art for rooms in your house, or any other similar project, he can do it. Carlos is a full-time police officer, a husband, and a father, but he enjoys kicking up the dust with this side hobby. He's a busy guy, but you will not be disappointed as you patiently wait for him to complete your project. So check out Luciano's Woodworking right now on Facebook and Instagram. See his work, share his work, share him on social media, and then let him know what project you'd like him to start for you. This podcast is for grown-ups only. Some of the content may not be appropriate for little ears like mine. One of the corporals, you know, old salty dog, you know, probably had 30 years on at the time, you know, yelling at us because people were saluting the, the Coke delivery guy. You know, I had a lot of informants that the reason they sold to me was because they needed money for their own addiction. Welcome to Diakonasa Cops Calling. I'm Anthony Weaver. It's good to be back after a two-week summer break slash vacation. Uh, we were able as a family to get away for a week to the beach, uh, which was super cool and relaxing. The kids are back in school tomorrow. Cannot believe that. And it's time to finish this season of Diakonasa Cops Calling strong, dare I say, kicking up a cloud of dust as we do that. Uh, this is episode 22, and the plan is to rock and roll here through November. Uh, come December, I'm going to be putting the podcast on a winter slash Christmas break. And then the plan is to start season two, probably the end of January or beginning of February. Now, uh, while I was on break this past week uh, and this past Thursday, I did a first, a very first uh, event here on the podcast that I've ever done. Lauren joined me and we did a live episode for our top tier patrons. So those patrons who give 10 plus dollars per month were able to engage with us on a live episode. They could do that via chat or calling in and speaking with us. And it was really awesome. I really liked it. Uh, and all the feedback I've gotten from patrons so far has been extremely positive. Uh, we talked about the tragic murder of Chicago police officer French on that episode and some of the fallout from that. And we also dived into COVID mandates and how the police should be handling or not handling those. A uh, ton of fun, great conversation, great engagement from patrons uh, in that live episode. So all that to say, over the winter uh, and Christmas break, I will be doing at least one, maybe two of these live episodes again. And if you become a top tier patron, you can engage in these live episodes. If you become a mid-tier patron giving five plus dollars per, per month, uh, you can't engage in a live episode, but you can listen to it after it's completed. 
If you just enjoy the podcast and want to support its mission, you can also become a patron for just $3 per month. You don't get all the perks uh, that I've been talking about so far in this episode, but it does make you eligible for prize drawings, and it just puts you into the into an exclusive group of people that don't just support me in word, but also in deed, and I really appreciate that. So just something to consider because we keep tweaking the patron program and making it better. Uh, and it's real easy to check it out. All you need to do is go to diakonosacc.podbean.com. And then the top right corner, there is a become a patron button. And uh, I will say this. Uh, one thing I've heard from patrons and been made aware of is if you log on to the site via phone, turn that phone sideways and into landscape mode to see that become a patron button. Speaking of patrons, the podcast gained a couple new patrons recently. The first is the Gonzalez family. So appreciate them and the encouragement they've provided me over the past several months. Another new patron I want to recognize is my man, Andy Steyer. I'm going to give Andy a bit more of a shout out and hopefully he doesn't mind that. Uh, he's a pastor at, and uh, Andy, forgive me if I, if I butcher this, Kanawha Salines Presbyterian Church in Charleston, West Virginia. Uh, Andy is an excellent dude who I knew as a teenager and just recently reconnected with him. Uh, currently, he's preaching through Luke at his church, and I would highly commend his messages to you. Uh, you can search for his church uh, name wherever you listen to your podcast, uh, because you will most likely find it there. I know it's on Apple and Spotify, uh, and the way you spell his church name is K-A-N-A-W-H-A, Salines is S-A-L-I-N-E-S, and then Presbyterian Church. Search for that Apple or Spotify. I know for sure they're on there. Uh, really good sermons, really encouraging, and most importantly, biblical preaching uh, that will challenge and encourage you. Andy, if that was too much, it's your fault. You didn't tell me I couldn't do that. So, All right, I have a really great guest on this episode for you. Retired trooper Jason Loudermilk uh, sat down with me to talk about his career. This is part one of that conversation, after which I'll have a brand new Cue the Dip winner and some other thoughts. Let's dive into this conversation right now. My guest on this episode is retired Pennsylvania State Police Trooper, Jason Loudermilk, Loudermilch. We just had this conversation about how you say his, how you say his name. How do you say it? I say Loudermilk. Okay. Jason served with the Pennsylvania State Police for 25 years, from 1996 until the beginning of this year. During that time, he worked as a patrol officer, a narcotics vice officer, a canine officer, and he finished his career as an instructor at the Pennsylvania State Police Academy. He spent many years of his career dedicated to drug enforcement and interdiction, and that's actually the role uh, in which I first met him. Like many who serve for many years in law enforcement, he has just simply done his job over the years, uh, whether, uh, whether he was on the mundane shifts or the shifts that push you into cert certain scenes like the Nickel Mines uh, school shooting. He is the very first Pennsylvania State Trooper uh, I've had on the podcast, and I really appreciate him sitting down to talk to me. Jason, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. Awesome. So the other day when we were talking about you coming on and uh, onto the podcast, and, and we were talking about um, just you being retired now, uh, and you were, you were mentioning that you, um, you just feel like you don't want to do anything that you have to think about anymore. And I think a lot of officers can sympathize with that. Can you like, I thought it was so well put because yeah, when I, when I first retired, I wanted to do something where I didn't have to think a lot. What, what did you 
How would you describe that? Why, why is that something for, for retired guys? Uh, I just think, you know, 25 years or however long you're a police officer, you're always under that constant stress, that constant microscope. Um, everybody's always looking for you at, at scenes and stuff like that to um, put things back where they need to be and uh, have that stability and stuff. And I, I think a lot of guys just, after they do the 25 years or however long it is, they just don't want to, everyone looking for them for all the answers for everything anymore. They just want to kind of, you know, I know a lot of guys that say they want to be a ranger at a golf course and just start people off on the, uh, on the greens there, you know? Right. Yeah. No, I think it, I think it's a valid point. I mean, pretty much your, your whole shift, you're, you're always trying to put things together in your own head, whether you're trying to determine if something in front of you, a law is being broken in front of you, or if you go to a call on the way to call, you're thinking about the call, like, how are you going to handle the call? What are some of the scenarios you could encounter? And then at the call, um, some which are extremely chaotic, you're, you're having to think through that, control your emotions and, and think through like from point A to point B to point C. And yeah, you, you, uh, and plus, I don't know if you, if you thought about this at all, but I felt like as I went on in my career, there was more and more things that I had to remember. There was more forms that need to be filled out, more programs that I need to be recommending to people, more just things that I had to remember along with the ever-increasing technology. Did you feel that way too? Oh, absolutely. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Especially, you didn't bring it up, but uh, for me, the big one was trying to stay on top of case law. Oh yeah, um, especially for doing drug work and stuff like that. Whether you could search the car, you can't search the car. What you needed to be able to search a car? Did you need a search warrant? Whatever. Um, yeah, like you said right there, going to uh, the scenes and stuff like that. Always constantly running through scenarios in my head. Um, you know, even with traffic stops. You know, before I got a- out or before I make the stop, looking to see where are the best places to make the stop. Uh, where was my cover if it goes bad and I need to uh, try and find cover during the. Uh, the exchange with the uh, the operator or whatever. Um, yeah, you're constantly thinking the entire shift is just um, very mentally draining. Yeah. So just to be able to sit back and, you know, I want people to tell me what to do. <laughs> I don't want to, you, <laughs> you know, don't want to tell people what no, to do anymore. No. Yeah. And that's the thing. I mean, and I think that's one of the biggest missing pieces right now in the, in the culture that we live where people are constantly judging. They're, they're watching a video. They're seeing the police do something. They're deciding if they like it or they don't like it. But they have no, they have no concept of the decision-making that's going on with the officer at that time. And they have no concept of, of what they're looking at from the suspect. So in other words, you and I, we watch a video and we see a suspect doing certain things. And we're already ticking off all the red flag indicators. And, you know, I used to hate going to these trainings later on in my career, I used to hate going to these trainings where they would show these videos and you knew, you knew something bad was going to happen to the officer in like at any moment. And you'd be watching and be like, there's another red flag. There's another red flag. And it's just like that pressure building. Well, that's happening on the street too. Like guys are picking up on these red flag indicators. At least they should be. And you can feel that, that pressure building. But when you watch a video, it's, it, I call it hindsight bias. I talked about it in one of my other episodes, like people know what happened 
they know how it happened. They know what the officer did right and what they did wrong. But the officer's in the moment. He's just trying to live it, live it out and make the right decision. So yeah, it's, and it's pressure. You know, the, the people watching it, they don't have all the information and stuff like that. Right. And um yeah, with as you said, I was an instructor at the State Police Academy um there at the end of my career and certain things that we taught um through the curriculum that I uh was assigned to teach and stuff like that. Uh the one thing dealt with uh MVRs and uh we didn't have body cameras or anything like that, but just what MVRs pick up and uh body cameras could do the same thing. But where you have somebody, um, if you had it from a different angle, let's say there's multiple cars there and you're getting it from the MVR from the officer who's involved in the shooting, um, and you don't see the gun or something like that, but then from the other officer's uh, MV MVR from the second vehicle, you can see stuff. But, you know, the news and stuff like that, when they put those videos out, it's always, it doesn't show, you know, just because you think you see something on that video doesn't necessarily mean that that's what's what happened because it could right. be a different yeah and when you say camera M angle yeah and when you say mbr you're talking about the the cameras that are in cruisers yeah the motor right um and and uh yeah you're right i mean the i mean case in point is that uh that video recently i can't remember what state it was out within the last several months where that that 16 year old girl was killed she had a knife and if you watch that full speed the first time I watched it, I it was really hard to see the see the knife. Now when it's slowed down and and they do like the frame by frame, yeah, it's it, clearly see. And that officer has seen it better than uh, that that video that was shot from across the street. And I don't know, I can't remember if they had body cams or not, but you know that uh, that's a perfect example that it's being it's a video shot from across the street and that's thrown up on social media and everyone decides that what the officer did was was wrong. Yeah and uh assign a narrative to it and you know people believe that narrative and until it was categorically shown not to be true but yeah it's it's a uh, it's quite a thing so you're you're retired now and uh and you're just you're you're doing stuff but you're just kind of hanging out with your family with your with your son and you know just taking it easy how's that how's how is that transition going for you uh, it's going good. Uh, <laughs> I don't. I don't think I ever really had an issue. Um, maybe initially, at at first, it was hard trying to get back into a routine. That was probably the biggest thing because uh, I I just had a routine with what I was doing with work. I was working predominantly the same shift all the time. Um, it varied here and there. I was working some midnight shifts up there and stuff, but uh, it just took me a while to get into that routine like i just feel more comfortable if i have that that routine that some kind of normalcy from what i had before right yeah i i have talked to i i i have talked to some guys who've retired and it's it's been like a bad transition like a hard transition for them um you never reminded me of the type that the job was like your whole identity um so i'm glad to glad to hear that cuz some guys some guys retire and their health like goes down and they're just, they're in bad, bad shape. I would say in the beginning I was running more often. I was hitting the gym more often. Um, just cause I dropped my son off at school and I'd go straight to the gym. I come back, I'd run. Um, the only thing that I might've had an issue with, uh, might be sleeping. Yeah. Like at nighttime for whatever reason, I, I used to be able to fall asleep before my head hit the pillow. 
Yeah. And now there's times where like I can't fall asleep at night. I might wake up in the middle of the night and I can't fall back asleep. So, dude, that's it's really weird you say that. I actually have, yeah, I was the same way. I never had trouble sleeping when I was on the job, and I have more trouble sleeping now. Um, the only thing that I can think of that might be is that, um, you know, having conversations with my wife or something like that, uh, she probably thought like, oh yeah, I know what you do all day. It's not that difficult, you know, but it's a lot of mental, mental stress and thinking and stuff like that. And I think that that tires you out mentally. I think that kind of helped me, um, sleep better than now. I'm not like I could be physically drained, but it's not helping me sleep as, as good as it did before because I, I don't have anything challenging challenging me mentally. Yeah, um, I think it's probably yeah. No, you. you that's could, what I say anyway. Yeah. No, you. You definitely could be right. I. Uh, I haven't quite figured it out yet, but yeah, if I, it, it just seems like I just don't sleep as well. Um. So, I don't know. I don't think I have a real good routine yet, though either. You would think I would. I mean, I have a I have a work routine, but I don't have. I was just thinking about it today, but I don't know. And my routine, why my son's home from school for the summer is kind of. <laughs> Maybe you know, that's what it is. I'll, yeah, that could be it. Yeah, that's. Yeah. Part, I mean, I know that's part of it. I always seem to struggle a little more during the summer because, yeah, everyone you know it's just a lot more laid back, but. Yeah, I don't know. That's that's interesting. Maybe I should uh, dive into that a little more and and try to figure out why that why that's happening. So, um, and you're a big hunter too. Um, I know that. I mean, I guess there's not really any hunting going on right now. But coming up, when does archery start? Uh, first weekend of October. Okay. All right. Do you do anything other than archery? I hunt with a with a rifle too. You do a but rifle too. Yeah. I mean, if I had to pick one, it would just be archery. Okay. Yeah. Um, but I mean, there's always something to do some time of year, putting cameras up, checking cameras, you know, scouting stuff like that. Yeah, you're really into it. Um, how? Uh, what's the what's the biggest game that you've taken with an archery? Uh, probably a bear up in Canada. Okay. Is that the one I saw on on Facebook? Yeah, probably. Okay. How big was that thing? It looked huge. Uh, it's all about the camera angle. <laughs> um, it was decent. Okay. Um, I mean, it wasn't like a 600 pounder or 400 pounder. It was probably two. Really? Yeah. Man, it is all about the camera angle. Cause I, I was like, that is a big bear. Yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of times if you see him out there in real life, you think, oh my word, that thing's probably about 700 pounds. Right. You know, and then if you saw it gauged against something, if you took a picture and there was a barrel or barrel or something out there, you'd probably be like, oh, it's about a hundred pounds. Yeah. Yeah. They look a little bit bigger sometimes when they're out there and they're close to you. Yeah. Yeah. Just intimidating. Now, how far away from it were you when you shot it? Uh, probably 30 yards. Okay. All right. And are you like, I, I'm not a hunter. Are you, when you hunt bear, you're not in it. Are you in it up in a tree stand or are you? Yeah. Up okay. there. We're in a tree stand. Okay. Um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I, I mean they're baited up there in Canada. Okay. Um, you want you couldn't do that legally here in, in Pennsylvania, but up in Canada in the spring you can. Okay. Cool. Cool. Is that the first and only time you've gone to Canada to hunt, or do you do you mm, do it? That was it. Really? Yeah. Okay. Cool. So how do you get into law enforcement? We're going right from bears to law enforcement. Uh, 
How did you uh, like what what caused you luck? To... <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, explain. Uh, I was just gonna say I, I yeah I when I first started college I started secondary education. I wanted to be a school teacher. Uh, that's what my dad did. Uh, retired as a school teacher. So I thought that's what I'd like to to do. I don't know if it was to help the kids or have my summers off, but um, <laughs> when I was at school, I ended up uh, switching the criminal justice um, major after my first year. And I don't know, I was just very interested in everything with uh, that course of study compared to secondary education and stuff. Um, I took a test for a local department passed the written test, went to the oral interview, never heard anything after the oral interview. And about a month or so later, I ended up taking um, the written test for the state police and was lucky enough to get on that list and go through that process and um, get on the job there. Just, I'd work security. I joke about it, but I work security um, with a bunch of guys, actually, that I work with with the state police that were doing internships at Hershey Park. Yeah. Um, when I turned 18 and, uh, I don't know, it's just something, it's hard for me to try and relate Hershey Park security to, uh, <laughs> being a police officer. Right. Um, but I mean, uh, most of the guys that were there were there, like I said, doing internships and stuff like that. Like their goal and goal was to be, um, uh, police officers, you know, for some department somewhere. Um, and just, I guess helping people there. Um, even in that security role, you're still helping, helping some people w with things, uh, medical emergencies, uh, lost children and stuff like that. But, yeah. um, I don't know. It just got me interested. Okay. So were you, were you working security at Hershey that caused you to kind of get interested in the field and then change your major? Or did you just decide in college for some reason to change your major and then start working at Hershey? I actually part? think working at Hershey kind of pushed me that way i okay. don't know i can't really explain why but you know when i was a little kid i wanted to be a state trooper but it was one of those things like i want to be a professional football player right you know like it wasn't something that i was passionate about or anything like that like i always was in amazement when i'd um be on the interstates or something like that and i'd see the trooper car out there although you know looking back at it i didn't really realize that they were troopers and i just thought yeah it was a police car it was cool right um, you know, and then just, uh, working there at Hershey and stuff and just, I don't know. I just always thought like, I'm not like a suit guy. Like I can't sit in an office in a cubicle all day wearing a suit. Um, you know, I ended up doing a, uh, I was probably 18 and did a ride along with a municipal, um, police to, not that I could get into a whole lot with them. A uh, guy pretty much told me, Chief said, hey, let's just, just drive them around. Don't make any traffic stops or anything, you know? Right, right. Um, which was probably smart, you know, knowing what I know now after doing it. Like, you never know what's going to happen. Right. You know, even the guy, even though the guy told me, hey, if it hits the fan, push this button, get the shotgun, get out here. Right. You know, but still, um, I don't know. Once probably, once I turned, I was probably close to 18 that I started deciding that, you know, I wanted to do that. Yeah. Because I started college when I was 17, turned 18, right after I was there. So probably before that first year was up, I decided that uh, that's probably what I wanted to do and signed up to take the test. 
Okay. So when, because most guys don't get through the state police test the, the first time, but you, from beginning to end, you made it through the very first time. Yeah. I have no idea how rhyme or reason for any of that. Um, You're just gifted. <laughs> <laughs> I guess. I don't know. Yeah. No, yeah. I mean, I, I was, I was lucky, you know, I got on at 22, um, went, started the academy when I was 22 and graduated a month after I turned 23. Okay. So it's yeah. good to get on early and. Yeah. Now how, cause you, at the end of your career here, you, you taught at the academy, you mentioned it earlier. How was the academy different when you went till when you were teaching at it or is it not different? I didn't really think it was that much different. Really? Yeah, I didn't. I mean, there were some things that I didn't remember um, that were just a blur. Like, I remember a couple things from the first day that I went. Um, some things that are different now. When I went, if I remembered correctly, and again, like, I don't know if I just, it was, it was that traumatic that I blocked it out or what, but <laughs> the first day I thought we went there on, a, on like a Monday got in there during the daytime and uh, started doing everything and got broken up into our platoons and everything. The way they do it now, they bring you in on a Sunday night. Okay. And do all that stuff. Um, okay. So you're there um, basically a night beforehand. But Yeah. Yeah. As far as all the stress and stuff like that, I mean, now was giving it out instead of right. taking it. But <laughs> other than I mean, I... It, it it's was pretty close. It's pretty close, yeah. I mean, I'm I, I'm pretty sure they're still sleeping on the same mattresses. Well, good. Uh, it might be the same mattresses as 1959 or whenever the building was built. But yeah, it's yeah. See, I I uh, I think in my head when I went into the academy, I thought it was going to be like I had heard stories about State Police Academy. Like it was like you're you know you're hugging the walls, you're saluting when superior officers are going by and everything. And in my mind, I thought Municipal Police Academy was going to be like that, and it wasn't like that at all. Actually, I was annoyed. I, I was like, I came here to get some discipline, and this is a joke. You uh, know, we, we learned. I mean, yeah. we were taught things, but I felt that it should have been a lot more disciplined. Um, you know, because, I, I, and that's what I was expecting, and it, it just wasn't as disciplined as I was expecting it to be. Yeah, there's plenty of discipline. Which, like, I think it, my personal belief, it has to be that way. Yes, um, I agree. And it's different with every class that ends up coming through there. But a lot of the classes, like, you might have, there's been times before where uh, the cadets arrive, they all arrive at the same time, or they're broken up into two waves, depending on how many cadets are coming at one time. But um, I wasn't there, I don't believe. But I had heard uh, one of the classes, it might have been right before I got there, that car pulled in in line with all the other cars instructors are out there yelling at them getting them parked and stuff like that guy took one step out got back in his car and drove off yeah you know which hey but if that discipline is not there those stressors aren't there like i don't know if you'd have to uh you know if you talk to other people they might be like oh you know that's not fair like you yell at the person to, to the point that they end up end up quitting you know they were there for a half hour right you know i mean you know as well as i do the the things that you're subjected to over the course of your career like if you can't handle me yelling at you and getting in your face for a minute 
like that you want to quit like this yeah. job's not for you i'm glad they end up leaving yeah you know because it's not necessarily that could have just saved their life and saved my life right yeah know? no i think it's a i think it's a very valid point because um yeah that level of discipline like you said it it does weed weed people out that that should be weeded out that don't have the uh you know whatever you want to call it the the personality for it, the the ability to handle stress, um, and and to work their way through that. So I think I think it's really important. Now, generally speaking, how many, what percentage of the academy classes going into the Pennsylvania State Police Academy actually graduate? Like what what how many what percentage leaves or what percentage graduates? Do you know? Uh, it it definitely varies per class. Uh, okay. There's a class I think they actually graduate on Friday that they lost very few people through the whole thing. Um, they'd actually resign. There's, you could have a, a, a conditional um, resignation. So if you get hurt, um, you're allowed to come back once you end up heal, getting healed. Like you might, stress fractures is probably one of the bigger uh, issues that they have because they're running three days a week. Yeah. Um, they get a stress fracture to the point that they have to sit out a couple weeks and can't run like you a lot of times I'll end up sending them home. Okay. Um, just because you can't, you're not performing to what the standards are. Right. All those other people have to make a certain time so they don't get restricted on a weekend. Right. And they can go home. So if you have to sit for four weeks and you can't run, like you can't, that's not fair to everybody else. Right. But I would say generally, if they, have, if they say they have a class of 120 come in, they'll probably graduate close to 100. Okay. So you'll probably have close to 20 that end up not making it to the end. Okay. All right. Yeah. I mean, I don't, again, I don't think it's a bad thing. Now there's the people that have like, that have to condition, do the uh, conditional, what did you call it? Resignation. Resignation because of injuries and stuff. Can they come right back? Can they recycle back into the next class or do they have to start the whole process all over again? No, they're, they don't have to do the written test, the oral, you know, they don't have to go through any of that other testing. It's just, they have to do a, a physical, um, whatever the entry level physical type stuff is to get back in. They have to make sure when it, it's their time, like they got to get cleared by the doctor. And I think probably the state police doctor. Right. Um, and then they have to go and they have to do whatever the standards are for entry. They got to be able to meet that to be able to come back in. Okay. So if they got hurt and they went out and they did absolutely nothing and they're ready to come back in and they're saying, hey, you're going to come back in in this um, October class or whatever, and they want to test you at the end of September and you have to do, I'm just going to throw it out there, 30 push-ups, and you come in there and you can only do three, like they're going to say, no, nah, you're not. Like, if I remember correctly, they can defer or if they don't make it, they, I, they might have a chance at one more. But the problem is if, um, depending on how often they're doing testing cycles, once the, the test that they tested on, if that makes any sense to you, once yeah. the test that they tested on is rescinded, that list is rescinded, and they have a new list from a new test, Gotcha. I think they have to be in within that amount of time, but okay. I don't, I'm not 100% sure. Okay, yeah. No, I, it was always something I was impressed about because even, even, um, you know, the last time I was at the state police academy for a training for myself, uh, you know, I still saw, you know, 
rookies or what do you guys call them cadets cadets you know i still saw them you know hugging the walls and saluting and saying yes sir no sir to me i'm like yeah i mean it's 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 no joke they must have been new if they were doing that to you (laughs) i mean that was always the joke like when when i was there i remember one of the corporals you know old salty dog you know, probably had 30 years on at the time, you know, yelling at us because people were saluting the, the Coke delivery guy, you know? <laughs> so yeah, in, right in, the, in the beginning, you're, you're, yeah, you're, you're walking on eggshells pretty right all day long. And until you figure everything out, who you have to salute, who you have to stand to, to, um, stuff like that. Yeah. Right. Cause, cause those cadets too, uh, you know, also are staying there. They sleep there. They, I mean, they're there. They sometimes get to go home on the weekends. It's usually every other weekend. Okay. If it's a holiday, pretty much everybody goes Okay. Um, as far as the cadets. But depending on how many classes are in there at one time and how many platoons are there, will dictate usually how many, how many weekends are off. Right, right. And, and they're like taking care of the grounds. They're like taking care of the horses because your, your horse unit is up there. Um, yeah, it's it's the stories I've heard. It's no joke. And so in my mind, going into municipal police academy, we didn't stay there. Uh, you know, we didn't sleep there. We went home every day, um, which was a giant pain. Um, but you know, I would I was like I was getting ready for that type of atmosphere, and I was I was I was a little disappointed. I think they could do better. I think they could do better. I'm just I'm just gonna be honest about that. Yeah, I'm not sure what I actually thought I was getting into when I started there. <laughs> you know, I mean, I knew they had to let me eat at some point during the day and let me sleep a little bit. Right. But other than that, I would say you got to go there with the mentality that it's a game. You just got to play the game. Right. Yeah. Um, but it's, I mean, it is what it is. Yeah. But it also, it does. Like, it, it just, uh, if you can go in with that mentality, then they know that, you're going to be able to play the game on the street and deal with people, um, you know, that are going to be doing far worse to you than, than what they're doing. They're, they're preparing you. Yeah. Everybody just wants to graduate with the instructors, not knowing who they are. (laughs) Uh, were you able to do that? Uh, Pretty much. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Although with my, my last name, it was a kind of a joke when I was there, but, uh, there was a guy named Dave Laudermilk. He's still alive as far as I know. Uh, but he actually retired like a month or two before I got on the job. Okay. So a lot of the old timers, including the commissioner and some of the instructors up there and stuff, thought I was his son because the name Laudermilk, there wasn't a whole. Right. That was the only one, I think, in the history of the Pennsylvania State Police. So I came along probably. Okay. So everybody f- just figured that that must be my dad. Okay. So Was that a good thing or a bad thing, though? Because depending. Uh, it didn't help me at all. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, I remember one of the, uh, a captain that was at the academy at the time asked me, or actually he said, Hey, just to let you know, your dad was a hell of a guy. Oh, okay. And I knew who this guy was, you know, I remember cause he worked in the Harrisburg area and, uh, just remembered seeing his name in the newspaper and stuff like that. And I told him, I said, uh, I said, sir, I said, with all due respect, Dave's not my dad. I know who he is, but he's not my dad, you know, but I remember at the, uh, going through different um you have inspections by various members of the department uh formal inspections where you're in your uniform uh they check your weapon make sure it's clean you know they might not do it to everybody but 
might ask you questions, stuff like that. And I remember there at the end, right before we graduated, uh, we were at the, our department headquarters in Harrisburg and the commissioner was walking with one of the lieutenant colonels and the commissioner stopped right in front of me and looked over at the lieutenant colonel and said, do you want to ask him or should I? And I knew exactly what he was going to ask me. And he's like, is Dave your father? And I was like, sir, no, sir. But yeah, there was a lot of yeah. those guys that had worked with him okay. coming up. So yeah. maybe it was a good thing. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I, gradu- I'm just, I'm I graduated. Just, yeah. I'm just glad you didn't like decide, oh yeah, they obviously like this guy. I'm just going to say he's my dad. <laughs> that would have worked out poorly for you, I'm sure. Uh, all right. So you got out of the academy. Obviously you made it. And uh, then you, and correct me if I'm, you know, wrong on these dates, but I, I believe you worked patrol from 1996 to 1999, and then again from 2008 to 2011. Is that correct? Yes. But in between there, like 1999 to 2008, you were, you were, do you, do they call it your vice unit? Is that what they call it? Vice narcotics unit. Okay. Yeah. And that's, that's how we got to know each other. Cause that, uh, you know, from, well, let's see, 2005 to 2008, I was on the, the uh, selective enforcement unit and you guys actually would come in and help us a lot uh with what stuff we were doing in the city um there was some sort of special program or grant that we were allowed to i forget how it worked i i think the state had a grant that allowed you guys to come into the city and help us and you would help us with operations and stuff and that's really where we where we got to know each other I, I, I was trying, before this episode, I was trying to think of like a standout thing that we did together that was either funny or crazy. And I couldn't really, all those years kind of are together. So I don't know, you know, I'm sure you were there when some... Yeah. Do you remember anything crazy? No. Specifically working with that unit? I don't, I, I don't really. I mean, we did a lot of work. I mean, a couple but. things working with the unit. I don't know if you were in, in the unit at the time or not, but there was a couple. Well, there was one, one funny thing, but that was on a prostitution detail that I'm probably not going to get into <laughs> with uh, just something that was funny with one of the people that um, there are a trooper who's also retired now um, that was acting as a prostitute for the night. Okay. And I was running a wire in a van. It was down on Water Street Uh in the city. And uh, a guy pulled up. I remember if he was on a bike or a moped or a motorcycle or walking or what he was, what he was doing. And uh, they were like, hey, you know, you want to party tonight? You know, what are you looking for? And uh, he's like, well, I don't know. What can I get? And she's like, well, how much money do you got? He's like, well, I got six bucks. And she's like, oh, we can talk, you know six bucks we can talk see what we can work out and he was like ah never mind i'm just gonna go buy a six pack you know we were rolling in the, in the van like i he had to have seen us because it was just right. at the time it was just funny like oh, no i'd rather get a six pack of beer than do anything with you <laughs> but i still give her a hard time about that to this day oh man it's something that always comes up <laughs> uh yeah there's uh there's a uh, prostitution details where i did not enjoy them personally but I mean, no, and that was probably one of the, if I had to pick one of a couple of the scariest moments that I had was probably during a prostitution detail. Really? Yeah. Where, you know, we would drive around, we'd have one guy usually as our cover guy or whatever for that. And you drive around, we try and pick up 
someone that we thought was a prostitute on the road somewhere in a certain area. You know, we try and target a certain area so you we didn't kind of overlap each other and yeah, had some idea what area you were gonna be in for your your cover guy. And uh, you know, we would always try and see if we couldn't introduce narcotics into um the solicitation for the prostitution. And I picked up a female and she wanted to go to this apartment. So I drove to this apartment and I'm like, I know my cover guy probably like we drove around for a while, you know, right. we were talking in the vehicle and then she, she was on the phone. Then she wanted to go, then we stopped at a street corner. Then she wanted to go in an apartment. And I'm just thinking, man, I, I don't know if he has any idea where I'm at. And, uh, we stop at this apartment. She says, you know, come on inside. So I'm like, all right, I go inside and uh, she gets a phone and she starts talking in Spanish. Oh, man. Like I, I'm not fluent in Spanish, but uh, I started my career off down in Avondale, down in Southern Chester County. Uh, a lot of Mexican migrant workers down there. So you pick up some. I picked up enough that I could write a citation. Okay. You know, and get some information that I would need and stuff like that. And, and I had a, sometimes you just have that spidey sense. Oh, yeah. And uh, I had a feeling I was going to get robbed. Like, I thought she was setting me up. Like, she kept on, like, walking upstairs and then coming down and walking upstairs. And at the time, uh, we had the Nextels. And I remember going to the bathroom, getting on the Nextel, and calling my my cover guy on the Nextel and the Direct Connect or whatever right. it was called and told him where I was at. And uh, I remember she came back down stairs and then she went back upstairs again the whole time she's talking Spanish on the phone and I just rolled out of there. I was like, it's not worth it. Right. Right. That's yeah. So you just, you just, you just ended up walking out. I just walked out. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, she didn't see me walk out, but yeah, I just had that feeling in the back of my neck. You know, it's only ever happened to me like one or two other times in my job. And yeah, you know, I was always taught you have that, that feeling that something's not right. There's no amount of drugs or anything that's worth risking your life or right anything yeah. like that. So yeah, I just rolled out of there. Yeah. Now, what's crazy is I remember, you know, when when I first got into that work, like we we tried to discourage guys from going into houses or apartments or anything like that, but guys would still do it, and uh, that you know, the more trainings I went to, the more I was like, there's, there's no point to it. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. So how did you feel about that towards the end of your career? Um, well, so you worked, you worked like vice narcotics. What did I say? Till 2000, 2008, 2008. Um, were you still doing stuff like that at the end? Probably. Yeah, probably. I mean, we still were. I mean, all the way up to 2008. I mean, whether it was in the city helping you guys out with certain things or, or, me just doing uh stuff within the unit uh i primarily did all my own like i didn't like working with informants because i didn't they were horrible in court right you know i would try and tell them hey when we're done doing something get a piece of paper out when i drop you off write down what happened so you have something to look at when it comes to court two years from now and you're going to remember this because i'm going to have a report you can't read my report right and they were just horrible. Like they'd say stuff that didn't happen and stuff like that. So like I had some bad experiences with them. So I try and just use them for introductions and um, try and get rid of them as early as on as I could in the investigation and and buy stuff. But uh, 
I mean, I did a lot of stuff inside houses. Um, I mean, I was, I remember sitting in one house on multiple occasions where I was probably there two, three hours just cause stuff never worked. You know, it was on drug time. Nothing ever seemed to work right. the way it was supposed to work. Um, but when you say that about like, and I've, I've told multiple people this, um, my son was born in 2009. I got done doing that in 2008 and, uh, there towards the end of my career, like, especially when I was teaching up at the Academy, you know, we'd go through our resume, you know, the first time they had class with us until, you know, you got to validate yourself. So they right. think like, Hey, this guy might know something. Maybe I better pay attention. Correct. And, uh, you know, guys would always, and girls would always come up to me afterwards and be like, Oh, that's what I want to do. I want to do vice. Like, what should I do? You know, what do I need to, to work on to try and get into that? Cause that's something I'm really interested in. And I tell them it was a great gig. Like, I had some great partners, um, work with some good guys. Uh, but I, like I would tell them I wouldn't do it today. Yeah. You know, like yeah. I just, I, I know I took a risk that once I had a child, it wasn't worth it. Um, nothing that I thought I was going to seriously, like I said, there were a couple occasions I walked out cause I'm like, forget it. Right. You know, but there are some, some things, you know, the further the investigation that, you know, maybe I, again, staying in that guy's house for three hours, I should have been like, no, right. Like call, you call me when you got what you, what I came for. Right. You know, I didn't need to sit there drinking beer while his wife smoked crack, you know, watching mice run across the floor, you know? <laughs> uh, did you ever have a gun pulled on you and any of those things or at least shown to you or anything? No. Luckily I never did. And I okay. only ever got called, called that one time. Um, actually in Lancaster city, just doing street buys. Yeah. Um, I got out and started walking with two guys and, uh, that was the only time in that whole time that somebody was like, Hey, what is that? You got a gun? Okay. You know, I was like, well, yeah, of course. Don't you, you know, like, I'm like, right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm doing business. Why won't I have a gun on me? Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, back then, like, probably 90% of the time I just throw it in my waistband with rubber bands wrapped around the, <laughs> the, you know, wrapped around the, uh, the grip. So it didn't slide around and stuff right. like that. Like if you were a holster, you were a cop, you couldn't right. wear a holster. Yeah. You know, but yeah, it's just, it's a different, just the amount of this stuff that's out there now. And, and mm. people just don't care. Yeah. 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 And you want to talk about, you want to talk about, something that is uh mentally taxing um doing undercover work is one of those things i mean i i did very little uh in my career i did some but it's it's a it's a completely different you really have to be good on your feet you have to be able to talk to people uh you have to be able to set aside like your little things that you do and yeah it's just it's a it's a different thing i i saw guys on the unit that could do it very well. I always thought you could do it very well because like I said, we, you know, I, I watched you work and stuff, but you know, I worked with some guys on the unit that were just really good at it. And then there were some guys that, that weren't that great at it. I was one of those guys. I wasn't that, that great at it, you know, but I, I enjoyed it. I liked doing it. Yeah. But it's a different animal. It is. And you know, as, as I've left that, that work, the undercover aspect of it, you know, the funny thing was always, you know, going to other trainings and stuff after that, you know, guys, you'd be at the training guys would be like, 
who here is a is a vice guy like who's in a vice unit you know for a department you're working on you know a couple guys raise their hand like oh yeah you know that's me i'm look at me i got long hair yeah I'm <laughs> wear whatever i want to wear and that was a nice thing i went 13 months without getting a haircut you know right. um i tried to grow a beard and stuff like that but the wife you know she didn't look like me looking too bad right um but uh you know guys would be all happy that they were you know the vice guy here and in, in these trainings and stuff like that and then uh you know whoever the instructor was because they were usually like interdiction trainings that i was going to then at that point and they're like all right if you want to buy a dime bag or you know you want your eight ball go ahead and stay with vice if you want to get kilos you need to come to interdiction you know and it was like that was like the first time i like thought about it. and i'm like you know what they're right not saying that guys aren't buying kilos but you know i mean it was a lot of smaller things with right. with me anyway yeah like we never worked it up yeah yeah that's not how- to the point that you know when i got in the canine like i seen multiple kilos pulled out of stuff right you know and it's like wow yeah that's where it's at that's yeah. where you're making making the difference yeah well i i would i would the only the only thing i would say in response to that is in in the city anyways that that uh uh street level stuff really kept a tamp on violent crime for us because that street level stuff was where people were getting shot Oh yeah, absolutely. People were getting robbed, like street robberies. I mean, I I can't I think people would be amazed at how many drug ripoff robberies there are that are never like it happens all the time. And in Lancaster City, it happened all the time. Like got drug dealers ripping off and robbing other drug dealers, and that would never get reported to the police. We'd find out about it after, you know, a rip turned into a homicide a couple weeks later for retribution. And then we'd find out, oh, you know, last week there was this like drug rip where they, you know, robbed this guy of all his money and his crack. And then this week they decide to to seek him out and, and kill him for it. Um, so like that stuff happens all the time. So when you're that street level stuff, if you if you're in that and you're you're dealing with that, you're really you're affecting violent crime. But it's also I always felt like those guys that are doing the kilos and stuff, those guys that are buying kilos and stuff. Those guys generally, not all of them, but I always felt like that was almost a little safer than the street level stuff because the street level stuff, a lot of times your dealers are also using, so they're tweaking and they're like, they're low level, they're low level. But these guys that are dealing kilos and stuff, they just want the money. It's business. It's, it's a, it's a business. It's, it's, it, it, it's not, I don't want to say it's less dangerous. It's just a different it's different. It's different. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Like, I mean, when in SEU, I mean, I, I saw, I think, two guys when I was on the unit as an officer get robbed on the street, one with a screwdriver, one had like a shank pulled on him. Like, it's like no joke. Yeah. I've, I mean, I've, I've had guys grab my money and run. Yeah. You know, I've had that happen a couple of times where they give you a, a beat bag, you know, they give you something right. that's not what you, like, I can see why, you, like, hey, if you're, unless they just figure it's just some addict. Right. Whatever. He ain't going to do nothing. Right. But, you know, I could definitely see, hey, you sell me garlic salt when I was trying to buy something else or something. Yeah. You just gave it to me real quick and then ran off. Like, I'm going to find you. Right. You know, I can see why people would do that. Oh, yeah. 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 It's, uh, it's, yeah, it definitely drives a lot of of violent crime. So what, what was it about that work? 
was it just an opportunity that came up for you to get on that unit or or was there something specific that kind of pushed you into wanting to do that type of work? For whatever reason, that was one of the things I wanted to do before I was ever a cop. Okay. So, and I don't know. I mean, I've always been very anti-drugs. Uh, I mean, I've never even smoked marijuana. I'm probably one of the few people that I know that, that hasn't. I haven't, I, I haven't either. Yeah. I mean, I don't meet too many people that haven't. You yeah, know, it's people, true. And people ask me like, oh, now that you're retired, you know, it's probably going to be legalized here soon. You know, are you going to smoke up? And it's like, I have no, like, why? Right. I mean, hey, if you want to, that's fine, whatever. But I, it's just not me. Um, it's just something I always wanted to do, you know. And then, again, luckily... Uh, I had the opportunity um, at the time we had stuff that was, we had two, two different drug undercover uh, drug investigating spots within the state. Um, you either had your, your local troop vice unit or you had uh, the Bureau of Drug Law Enforcement and our uh, Bureau of Criminal Investigations. Um, they had ones and they were more like they might, they might cover multiple counties. Um, the troop, we'd just cover what was within the troop area. So a lot of guys that were interested in doing drug work and doing the, uh, the interdiction when I first got on in patrol and wanted to do undercover work. Luckily for me, they tested, they had that test for the Bureau of Drug Law Enforcement a couple months before the troop spot opened up. So those guys all got spots. Gotcha. And then I had a little less, uh, little less competition and just, was lucky enough to get in the unit and you know it was one of those things i thought like i could stay here and i could i got in with three years a little over that was like three and a half maybe okay um i don't know maybe it was around three years i think it was three years and uh i could do this the rest of my career i could do this another 22 years if i want to as long as i'm working you know and i don't screw something up which which i didn't intend on it right i could have stayed there and and just did the drug work because that was something that I was passionate about. And, um, you know, like you said, even though it was street level type stuff, like I still felt like I was doing something for the community with that. Right. You know, a lot of my, like you said, uh, a lot of the people that were selling are, are users, you know, I had a lot of informants that the reason they sold to me was because they needed money for their own addiction, you right. know, and for whatever reason, I'm not saying that I didn't think this towards the end, but being newer on the job, you know, you think you can still save the world. Right. You know, and I thought, hey, most of them at the time were heroin addicts. I thought, you know what? I I think I can help this person. I think I can talk some sense into them and see what it is that they're doing and try and straighten their life around. And uh, whether it worked with any of them, I mean, I know some of them it worked for a little bit, some it didn't, but. Right, right. What was it about, like, when you said you were always, like, anti-drug, like, you were, you know, you never touched the stuff. Was there any specific reason for that? Or you just, you just, did you see it affecting people you were growing up with a certain way? Or or what was like, that? I, I grew up in a small town in Schuylkill County. Okay. And I ended up moving to Harrisburg area um, when I was 13. And I never seen any drugs before that. Like, I didn't even know anything about drugs. And then I remember I was in seventh grade and being in the bathroom and this kid pulling out this big, like gallon sized bag from his pants 
that had what I, I mean, at that time I had an idea, like I, when I first seen it, I don't even know that I knew that it was marijuana, but then I put two and two together, you know, by the end of the day. Right. And, uh, yeah, I had a cousin who, uh, was arrested for drugs for, uh, I think deliveries and possession with intent. Um, it was younger cousin, couple, couple years younger than me, but that happened like when he was probably, I was thinking I was like 18 maybe or something, you know, but I, I was always, I always seemed like I was, I always felt like I was that kid that if, uh, somebody had a, you know, like the shortcut to get to the, to the park was going through this person's yard and they had a stay off the grass sign. I always felt like I can't go on that grass Why everybody else ran across it. Yeah. I don't know. It's always weird for me to try and explain that. Okay. But in my mind, like I, I always was, I don't want to say that walk the straight and narrow, but like, yeah, I always thought about consequences. Yeah. You know, for things and, and try not to get in trouble and try to distance myself from, from people that uh, were doing things that I knew that they shouldn't be doing. And- Tune in next week for part two of my conversation with Jason. In that episode, we'll talk more about his work in the Vice Drug Unit on the Pennsylvania State Police, his time as a canine officer, and he also talks about the day the Nickel Mines Amish School shooting happened um, and, and what he was doing that day and, and uh, just his recollection of that um, terrible event. So really appreciate him coming on and talking to me, and I'm looking forward to part two next week. Listen, every week I'm on the lookout for the next Cue the Dip winner, and this one is a bit of a throwback coming to us from July 27th, 2018, out of Wyoming City in Michigan. Uh, Sergeant Chris DeBoer and Rob Meredith, both sergeants of the Wyoming Department of Public Safety, are this week's Cue the Dip winners. Uh, Here's what happened. They got a call of a wrong-way driver. Um, who was going south in the northbound lanes of a local highway around 2 a.m. on that date back in 2018. Uh, They raced to the highway in question to try and intercept the wrong way driver. Um, They make the decision to take the highway lanes with their cruiser and basically use their cruiser as a shield to try to stop this driver and prevent him from hurting and or killing uh, an innocent driver that's driving in the correct direction. Uh, I'm going to play some audio of Sergeant Meredith talking about this incident, and it includes some audio from the actual collision as well. A couple things to note before I play this. Uh, Just listen to the emotion in Sergeant Meredith's voice as he talks about the decision uh, he and Sergeant uh, DeBoer made. And also pay attention at the beginning of the video as you will hear the engine of their cruiser racing uh, as they are getting after it, absolutely getting after it to get between this driver and innocent drivers. Pretty often it's the middle of the night, it's bar closing time, the drunks are out, not a lot of people are driving. That's when the calls are coming in for the wrong way drivers. The information you have most of the time is that they're drunk, they're asleep at the wheel, you do have a possibility of stopping them, so you take the best route you have with the option you have. Take as many lanes as you can. Watch yourself, watch yourself. 
We are going to set up like this. He's coming right at us right now. All right, we got him coming at us, dispatch. Decided to take the center lane and keep our push bumper facing them. And you just see the headlights coming and yeah, we're coming fast, you know, 80 miles an hour. It's on you like that. I think on the unedited video, there's some choice words. Watch yourself. You all right? credit Sergeant DeBoer with really saving me because of preventing a head-on collision. He turned into the impact and gave it a glancing blow that ripped one of the wheels off the truck that struck us and continued for two miles further um, south in the northbound lane before the vehicle was completely disabled and stopped by other officers. You just know that that's what you're, what's coming. You really don't have you another choice? I mean, you could you could pull off and let them hit a citizen, you know, but that's not why we're here. So, this, the goal is that he wakes up if he's asleep, or he sees the headlights and and stops the car. So, we can put ourselves there, but it's up to him to not hit us. So the suspect in this incident, uh, he was DUI. He got one year, three months in prison, and he was paroled in January of 2020. Uh, this was his third, possibly fourth DUI offense, and he had actually just gotten off probation for his last DUI offense two weeks before this accident. So just some considerations about this. First of all, the decision uh, these officers made. Every day, officers know uh, they may find themselves in harm's way, many times happening before they can even prepare for it. But in this case, Sergeant DeBoer and Sergeant Meredith had time to make a decision that could have had extreme and deadly consequences. Uh, you know, they could have been killed. What if the driver was not DUI and was asleep or having a medical problem causing the wrong way driving? Um, and they made this decision. What if they killed the driver with this action? And what if they killed him, especially if he wasn't DUI? but was just having like a medical problem. What if they chose not to stop the driver and instead attempt to follow him and pull him over? What if they didn't stop him in the manner that they did and he killed an innocent driver? So I'm sure all these things were going through their minds um, as they were making this command decision on the fly uh, in every second that they responded to this call. And every day, officers sometimes consciously before their shifts, but most often subconsciously, Get ready to put their life on the line should it need to happen. It, it's in the back of their head. It, it's always kind of the elephant in the room, uh, which is most never talked about, but it but it's there. But sometimes officers, like in this case, case with Sergeant DeBoer and Sergeant Meredith, they have to consciously make that decision and have to make a call like this one. It's one thing to know it's a possibility on any given shift. It's quite another to purposefully place yourself in a position to likely be gravely injured or killed. And that's just what Sergeant DeBoer and Sergeant Meredith were faced with in this moment. And what if they had killed the suspect with their action? Would we call them heroes or would we have them strung up in the court of public opinion and called them murderers? I mean, it really could have gone a different way. I'm not sure, but you know, and I'm not positive that would have happened. 
But these were heavy decisions being made in the moment, second by second, without any luxury of knowing what we know now. The driver was drunk and that he had several previous offenses now helps us. Those things help us hearing it after the fact to be comfortable with their decision and easily dismissing the uncomfortableness and angst of their decision in the moment. And here's another thing I'd like us to consider, that the actions of Sergeant DeBoer and Sergeant Meredith also helped the suspect in that it prevented him from killing an innocent person and finding himself in prison for a much longer sentence. I found this to be such an amazing display of courage, to put themselves in front of a drunk driver going 80 plus miles per hour, risking life and limb to protect others. So I salute Sergeant DeBoer and Sergeant Meredith as this week's Q the Dip winners. During this episode, retired trooper Loudermilk and I spoke about the Pennsylvania State Police Academy and about how the instructors there place an extreme amount of stress on the new cadets the minute they arrive, so much so that some just leave immediately or soon after arriving. This is a good thing as it prepares new officers for what they will face on the street. It is true that officers must be able to control their emotions and handle all types of abuse professionally, but that doesn't mean that that abuse is right or good. However, the police expect this type of abuse from many people they deal with, day in and day out. Where they don't expect it from is their leaders, their command staff, pastors, and people of influence who follow the law. These people should recognize what the police do, what they provide, and what the police are willing to do for them in their time of need if they ever need to call 911. They should be much more eager to show deference instead of jumping on the hate the police bandwagon. And what about those who do verbally abuse and harass the police? Obviously, the police should be able to take it and be professional in the face of it. But in many jurisdictions, this type of abuse is non-stop. Especially in our cities, this type of verbal abuse is almost received on every stop and every call, and yet we expect the police to never lose their tempers and always be professional. We expect them to take it. In my career, I had some shifts where I was so relieved to conduct a stop where the person was decent to me that I often would show discretion and let that person go with a warning, just because it was nice to have a person be honest with me, treat me with respect, and not insult or name call me. Just this week, I saw two guys verbally insult two police officers. An officer I know who was training and a rookie he was training were walking down the street toward the store. It appeared they were going to be coming in to speak with me. And walking closely behind these guys were were two other guys, one holding a sign. And I keyed in on this because I felt the one holding the sign was walking pretty closely behind the officers. It just, my instincts were like, something's not quite right here. And I saw that this sign said something like 25 cents for a joke. And as the officers opened the door to come into the store, these two guys stopped the officers and asked them if they wanted to hear a joke. They obliged, and the guys launched into a joke, of which, I'll I'll be honest, I didn't hear completely, but it was definitely racially charged and suggested that cops are racist. Just two full-out raging idiots that obviously thought it was okay to tell a joke to two cops in public in front of other people in which they suggest they, along with all the police, are racist. Now, these two officers handled this very professionally simply refusing to engage and just walking into the store to speak with me. 
Now here's my issue. Right now in Lancaster City, that police department does not have any type of public support from the mayor or her staff. Behind closed doors, I've heard the mayor state she supports the police. When speaking with officers, she's expressed her support. And I've been in those meetings and heard her say that. But she's also made it clear in those meetings that her and her administration will not support us publicly. And she suggested that that won't happen because of the political climate. And yet the officers take this abuse daily in the street from people who likely would align themselves with BLM and any other anti-police movement. People who likely were or would be involved in action against the police. And these are the people the mayor and her administration will publicly support. Addressing them publicly for all to hear. Legitimizing and agreeing with their demands. Telling them to take the street. Marching with them and holding meetings with them. In spite of all these things, these two officers I witnessed and many like them remain professional every day. As they should. But I strongly believe that this type of behavior should not be ignored. This type of abusive behavior from people toward the police should not be ignored. Be professional, yes, but deal with this. To ignore it, to simply walk away, simply emboldens more foul acts or even possibly physical attacks. It emboldens people who see this type of action and don't see a response. These acts are done in public, and if not addressed or handled, they embolden others. Let me expand on this. Let's say you're a police officer driving down a street, and a a guy decides to yell, F you, pig, as you drive by. Or maybe he just flicks you off with the middle finger. You can absolutely keep driving and not address that. And I'll even say there may be times where you should do that. But what message does that send to the community? Well, for those in the community who engage in criminal activity, it emboldens them. It shows them that, hey, I can treat that officer a certain way, and he won't do anything about it. I was distinctly aware of this in the city and the areas where I, where I worked. If I didn't address that type of behavior, I was distinctly aware that other people in the community who were engaged in the criminal element were noticing that and deciding. Weaver's a pushover. Weaver's a chump. I can do whatever I want when he's on patrol. And so I usually choose to address it, and I'll get into how I would do that. And what about the law-abiding citizen? What message does it send to them? Well, it sends the message that, hey, this officer is probably not going to be very assertive. And if this officer will allow this type of activity and not address it, what else will he or she allow and or ignore? I'm not second-guessing this FTO and his rookie that I just spoke about. I'll even admit that in this particular situation, in that moment, they may have handled it as they should. And knowing this FTO, he quite likely did what I would have done and what I'm going to suggest shortly. Because I do have some thoughts on how an officer can and should think about handling this type of interaction from people who show outright and public disdain for those who would protect them and help them in a moment's notice. The first thing you can do is get a name. When people are anonymous, they feel much more emboldened to act like this towards the police. But simply stopping your car, getting out, going up to the person, and asking them, obviously you want my attention, I just want to make sure you're okay, and try to get a name. I would do it all the time. If I had someone that flicked me off while I was driving a cruiser in my area, or 
yell at me, F you pig, those things in and of themselves generally aren't illegal. So you have no reason to stop that person, but every reason to check on them and make sure they're okay. Because obviously they want your attention. And so I would just get out of my car and be like, yo, man, what's your name? Are you okay? Do you need my help? You obviously want my attention. And most of the time, you'd get another FU or something like that. But first of all, you're addressing it. You're not ignoring it. You're letting other people know that you're not going to put up with it. You're not stepping outside the bounds of the law. You're not doing anything illegal. You're not arresting them. You're not stopping them. You're just simply getting out of your car and engaging in conversation with them. And sometimes they would tell you their name. And the first thing I would do after I drove off was to run that name and make sure they didn't have a warrant. Because if they had a warrant, I was right around the, back, right around the block and I'd arrest them. If they didn't give you their name, I would tell them, I'm going to do a lot of research and I'm going to figure out who you are and what your name is. And I would. Sometimes I would spend the rest of my shift between calls and between other things I was doing, was doing, trying to figure out who the person was. And when I did figure out who the person was, I made sure the next time I saw them, I would address them by name. Obviously, this person wants my attention. They want to have interactions with the police. They want something and they want my attention. So I would figure out who they were and take away that anonymous feeling that they had and let them know, I now know who you are. I will address you by name every time I see you. I will check you for warrants. I will give you attention. I will make sure that you follow the law every time I see you. So if you step off the curb and jaywalk, you're probably going to get a ticket from me. Because obviously you view the police a certain way and you want my attention. Again, these things need to be done within the confines of the law. But people who are engaged in that type of behavior are generally engaged in criminal activity as well. Not all the time, but generally. And so I would give them a lot of attention. Now, some may say that that is pretty petty and you were just seeking a way to to have revenge and retribution. And for sure, there were times where I would have to check my heart and make sure that that wasn't the case. And there were probably times for sure where that was the case. But ultimately, people who engage in this type of abusive behavior towards the police should be addressed. That behavior should be addressed in some way. Obviously, you can't arrest them. You can't stop them. But you should be addressing it. They want your attention. Give them your attention. Make sure they're okay. Maybe there's something wrong with them if they're doing something like that and treating the police like that and yelling F you pig when you drive by or giving you the finger as you drive by. They obviously want your attention. And so that's how I always treated it. They want my attention. I'm going to give them uh, attention. And sometimes that just meant I got out of the car and I hung out with them. You know, you'd, you'd have a group of guys hanging on the corner or in front of an address. You go by, one of them would yell something at you or, or a bunch of them would give you the finger or whatever. Just stop the car and get out with them, hang out with them. You want to talk about uncomfortable? They want you to drive by. They want to send the message that, hey, we own this block. You can't do anything about, the, about us. And so if you would stop and you would get out, Sometimes I wouldn't even say a word. I'd just hang out. How you doing, guys? And I'd just hang out with them. And sure, you'd, go, you'd get the back and forth sometimes. What are you doing? Why are you harassing us? I'm not harassing you. 
I'm hanging out on a public sidewalk. You're the one that wanted my attention. And so these are just some tools that officers can use to address this behavior because I think it needs to be addressed. When it happens, I think it should generally be addressed in some way. And at the same time, I understand that in this political climate, addressing this type of behavior has become almost non-existent because officers don't want to engage in those confrontations. They don't want to have those conversations for fear of being videotaped, for fear of it escalating into something else. And I'll just say this, if you address it professionally and you stay within the confines of the law, I would hope you're going to be okay. But in this day and age, you can't even guarantee that. Because if, the, if, if a person sees it, if a person above you and your command staff sees it, sees the interaction, and decides that you acted unprofessionally, or they didn't like that you got out of your car and dressed it, then you could have a problem. And so officers are in this no-win situation where people can verbally abuse them, physically assault them, and their hands are being tied as to what they can do. I'm not just saying that. I know of specific cases right now all over the United States where officers simply doing their job are being called on the carpet for it. And what does it lead to? It leads to emboldened criminals, emboldened people who think they can talk to the police a certain way, they can disrespect the police a certain way, they can say whatever they want, they can do whatever they want, and the police aren't going to do anything about it. And they continue to be emboldened because those in authority, those in command staff, those political entities that oversee the police department refuse to stand up for their police refuse to publicly support the actions of the police. We are living in some extremely challenging and troubling times. I cannot tell you how deeply upsetting it is for me to see people treat the police so poorly when I know what it takes to do the job. And when I know that the one who hurls the insults or even the physical assaults at the police may well be the one officer's race to help the next day. It's easy, it's, it's easy to get discouraged. It's even easy to feel like hope is waning. And that's how my past week was. When I saw things going on in our country, when I saw things going on in Afghanistan, and that absolute heart-wrenching, terrible decision-making that's going on there. And I remembered a verse that, that helped me. And I put it out on Facebook, and it's out of Ecclesiastes 7.14. And it says, In the day of prosperity, be happy. But in the day of adversity, consider, God has made the one as well as the other, so that man will not discover anything that will be after him. It helps me to remember who my God is and where my hope lies. Not in any good on this earth or in people. My hope lies in the one who rules over the good days and the bad. My hope lies in the God that rules over those that do evil and those that do good. My God was before all. He is now and he will always be. He alone is where I must choose to place my hope and he alone should help me and you kick up the dust in pursuit.